Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Good morning, church. Our Bible reading this morning is taken from 1 Peter again. So it's going to be coming in two parts. The first part will be 1 Peter 1, verse 1 to 5. And the second part will be 1 Peter 4, verse 12 to 19. So we start with 1 Peter 1, verse 1 to 5. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect ex- exiles of the dispersion of Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power and being guarded through faith for, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And our second part, 1 Peter 4, verse 12 to 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your awesome word. Um, Your word is true and it is living and it is whole. Father, we thank you um, for reminding us that yes, we have um, a savior who through his resurrection, we have an inheritance that is imperishable and that's been kept in heaven for us. Thank you, Father, for this. And thank you for being an awesome God. Father, we pray that your word will come alive today. And we pray that it will be in our hearts. And I pray, Father, as Josh comes up to to minister to us, um, that we will be filled with your word and that we will be filled with joy, that we may get to know more of you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, and let me add my welcome to the one that Andy gave earlier. 
It's a real joy to be speaking to you today, although we are looking at a very sobering but important topic, God's care for the persecuted church. And by persecuted church, I mean Christians who suffer because they are a Christian. A few months ago, the International Bar Association, which is a group of lawyers and legal bodies from international countries, published the findings of their inquiry into a, uh, alleged human rights abuses in North Korea. And among the things they found was that there was evidence indicating that mass human rights abuses happened there and that Christians in particular were targeted. The report reads, detention periods have been documented as being longer for Christians than other groups and witnesses have reported that identified Christians are interrogated for longer periods, usually under torture and experiencing some of the worst forms of torture to force them to incriminate others during interrogation. And in a separate part of the report, examples of those um, tortures are given. And they include being hung on a cross over a fire, crushed under a steamroller, herded off bridges, trampled underfoot, and female detainees who are pregnant undergoing involuntary forced abortions. Horrific, isn't it? And the Christian charity Open Doors estimates that of the 400,000 Christians in North Korea, between 50 and 70,000 of those are living in uh, camps and detainment centers just like that. And that's just one country. The website also estimates that across the world, conservatively, there are at least 360 million Christians who experience intense persecution and suffering as a result of following Jesus. And that's a big number, isn't it? 360, oh, 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 oh. Men, women, and children suffering for following Jesus. Well, today we're going to conclude the God's Care series by focusing on God's care for the persecuted church. And you might be asking, well, why are you limiting it to Christians? Does God only care about Christians? Doesn't he care about Muslim Uyghurs being persecuted in China? Doesn't he care about Sikhs being targeted in India and other countries? Well, the answer is no, God cares, because God is a God of justice, and um, whenever injustice happens, God is unhappy with that. The book of Proverbs says he hates hands that shed innocent blood, and the scripture is full of what God says he will do to protect the, the widows, the orphans, and the people who kind of perpetrate those things. And one day there'll come a day of reckoning where God is going to hold everyone to account for the wicked things that they have done. Sometimes God does that in human lifetimes, right? He removes wicked rulers and sets free those who are persecuted and oppressed. And on a day when we're remembering the armed forces who've given themselves to protect freedoms in countries, we mustn't forget that sometimes kind of properly constituted governments that authorize these things can actually be, be used by God in all the messiness. But it's also fair to say, isn't it, that a lot of people who do wrong aren't brought to justice and they seemingly go scot-free while their persecutors are, their persecuted people that they focus on don't experience those things. Well, as I said, one day there will be a day when God will hold everyone accountable for what they have done. So everyone can have justice, that justice will be done. But still then, in light of that, why are we focusing on Christians? Well, first of all, right, this is a church, and it's understandable that Christians want to focus on people who believe the exact same things that we do that are persecuted in a way that we are not in another country. And as you'll have seen in various articles, the general trajectory of public life these days is that it's becoming increasingly uncomfortable for Christians to live out their faith publicly. Now, the life of a Christian in Pyongyang in North Korea 
is very different to one in 21st century London. But if that trajectory continues, it might be that people in this room will face discrimination or even persecution for being faithful to Jesus. And if that happens, you might be wondering, does God care for you if he lets you go through that? And even if you're not a follower of Jesus, this is a, uh, something you should listen to because you can learn a lot about someone by how they treat their own. And you have the right to ask the question, if God loves Christians so much, why does he allow them to suffer horrific things like the things I read about at the start of this? Why is it worth you putting your all in with Jesus and following him if that's what he allows to happen to his followers? So this morning we're going to see how God does care for the persecuted church and the hope that that gives to all of us. Now our reading is taken from a first century letter written by a man called Peter to Christians who were scattered in different provinces across the Roman Empire. They'd been forced to leave their homes in Jerusalem and parts of Judea after they converted from Judaism to Christianity. Many were disowned by their families and victims of extremist mobs, and they were forced to live overseas. They were scattered and they were exiled or strangers in the world, depending on your translation. That means they were in a place they didn't know very well, they didn't want to be there, and as often happens when you get unfamiliar people kind of moving into your area, they were unwelcome by many of the locals. It was written by Peter. He was a Christian leader who was trained by Jesus in um, Jesus' earthly ministry. And at this point, he was an older man. He'd been following Christ for 30 years, and he had experienced and seen suffering. He'd seen this suffering kind of change from vigilante mobs to the king of Judea, Herod Agrippa, kill his friend, the fellow apostle James. And he'd also experienced suffering firsthand. He'd been beaten. He'd been imprisoned um, for following Jesus on multiple occasions. And he was writing to assure these scattered believers to let them know that God cared for them. Because when you're undergoing persecution and suffering, it can be tempting to fall into one of two um, errors. The first one is that you think God doesn't care for you. Either he doesn't care for you enough for you to talk about him because you're scared of men more than you are of God, or that you just want to stop following him because you think he doesn't care. Because that's what persecution is ultimately aiming to make you do, by the way, is aiming to make you shut up or give up. And the other kind of extreme you can go to is that you don't doubt that God cares for you, but you become bitter as people are unkind to you, and you start to kind of have a them and us mentality, and you, know, you seek God's vengeance on them rather than their good, and both of those errors are, are nothing like our, our, our God and the way he calls us to live. So Peter writes from a place of authority to seek to these dear Christians and let them know of God's love for them. And I want to look at three things uh, today as we kind of look at this question about God's care for the persecuted church. The first is if we doubt God's care for the church, we look at the cross. That burst of worship that we've said a couple of times already, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You know, the gospel message of Christ's death and resurrection is Peter's first and greatest encouragement. They have a new birth into a living hope. And Peter chooses these words carefully. If you're going to turn to the first page of the Bible and you were going to summarize the first two chapters, that word would be life. You see, God take nothing and inject it with life. There are plants that are bearing fruit and crops. There are fishers he's putting in the sea, animals on the ground, birds in the sky. And his creation culminates as he makes man and women 
in his own image to experience abundant life in relationship with their creator God as their benevolent king whose way is good, who seeks their good, and that they might experience joy in relationship. But if you were to look at the next chapter in Genesis, the one word summary would be death. You see the dreams and hopes of the first chapter dissipate as life becomes finite and the quality of life becomes exhausting, painful, and acrimonious. We see mankind becoming spiritually dead to God, unable to relate to him as a friend, and cast out as his enemy. And that all happened because the first humans do what every one of us has done since then. We reject God as our benevolent and righteous king and try and do things our way and tell him what he can do. That's what the Bible calls sin. And the result of sin is death. Physical death, ultimately. Spiritual death and everlasting death. For when our earthly lives come to an end, we will experience a horrific, everlasting punishment for our sin against God. We are dead spiritually, and we are without hope. And that was once true for the people Peter was writing to, but he reminded them that because of Jesus, it was no longer true for them. Because in his great mercy, God had given them new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Christ. For God so loved human beings that in the person of Christ, he entered into our world. He lived a life of perfect relationship with God the Father and obedience to him, that he never sinned. He died the death that each of us deserve to experience punishment for all our sin, and he rose glorious to show that death would not have the final word. Jesus came to give us life, and life in all its abundance. And you know, that's not just that he came to spare us from hell, it's that he came to give us relationship with a God who loves us and sent his son for us. That in the midst of our suffering, we would know that we were not alone, that God himself was with us. He helps people endure the trials and he gave them a living hope that one day, Jesus is coming to wipe away every tear from every eye and remove all traces of sin, sickness, and death into that inheritance that is imperishable, that can never perish, spoil, or fade. These persecuted Christians had been spiritually dead, but now they were alive in Jesus and enabled to endure everything that was before them. So Peter calls them to praise him because their suffering was temporary. Through the gospel, there would come a day when they wouldn't have to look over their shoulder to see if there was someone clocking them, wanting to harm them. There'd come a day they'd never have to bury any of their friends who died for following Jesus. They could also praise him because their suffering, as bad as it got, would be the worst it would ever get. And one day that would be swallowed up in victory when Christ returns and that everlasting kingdom of joy is established. And even in their suffering, they could praise him, that Jesus was at work in them, helping them to endure it as he built their faith. They could praise God because of the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection. And you know, friends, you must never think of the gospel as like the entry point into Christianity only, like the introductory phase. It's the lifeblood of our Christian faith and our relationship with God. We had a new birth into a living hope. It's what Paul says, he's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in God. We've been forgiven of our sins and we have the promised Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance to come. These are all achieved through the gospel because we can know in the gospel we are loved, forgiven and equipped to endure anything. And all of us need to hear that. But these persecuted Christians needed to hear that louder than anybody else because they were under most temptation to doubt God's love with what they were going through. Well, Peter says, if you doubt God's love for you, 
Look at what he's accomplished for you through his death on the cross and his resurrection for you. There you will see God's love for you. Look at the cross and he gave you a living hope. Next, Peter calls us to learn from Jesus. As you go through the letter into chapter four, looking at verse one, this this wasn't in the reading before, Peter connects the suffering of Christ with the suffering of his followers in these provinces. He says, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they don't live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but for the will of God. Peter's key point here is that following Jesus will involve suffering, but if you suffer for him, you are not following your earthly craven human desires, you are following the will of God, and God is using that suffering for a higher purpose for him to work through you. Well, how are they to do that? Peter says, verse one, arm yourselves with the attitude of Jesus who came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The one who was oppressed and afflicted yet did not open his mouth at his trial. The king of kings who humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. And our attitude as his followers is to be the same as him. For Peter once heard the voice in Caesarea Philippi saying to him through the mouth of Jesus, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Now today we honor the lives of those who made the ultimate sacrifice uh, for our freedoms and the safety and security of our country or whichever country you may be from. And it's always a poignant day, but it's particularly poignant today because for the first time in 70 years, just around the corner, we had a king laying a wreath instead of a queen. And you know, the monarch does this on behalf of the nation and the nations of which they're the, the, the head of, but there's also a more personal connection because if you're in the armed forces, you make a pledge to serve the crown, that is your king or queen and country, not just kind of the country collectively. And that's why historically monarchs have you know, had a lot of affection for the army because they, they realize what these people give for the defense of the country. And when our dear beloved late queen died uh, last September, you'll know she died in Scotland at Balmoral and her body had to be flown back to London. And the plane behind me, the Globemaster, was the one that brought her remains back to London. Now, in the days following her death, various tributes were kind of disclosed, and one came from a man called Pete Morgan. He was a staff officer who worked on a top-secret plan as to what would happen if the Queen did die outside of London. When he inherited this plan, the plane they were going to use was called the BAE 146. It was a sleek commercial liner, looked very regal, and it had been used to bring back Diana, Princess of Wales' body from Paris in 97. But... It wasn't very suitable, really. It was hard getting the coffin into the freight bay, and due to subsequent upgrades and modifications, um, they felt it wasn't the right one. So they carried out a shortlist of various tests, and they chose this plane, partly because it had already got experience bringing back bodies, because it was used uh, for fallen servicemen and women in Afghanistan so their families could give them a proper uh, funeral uh, and burial or cremation. But because this kind of big, utilitarian, bombastic jet didn't have the grandeur or elegance of the existing one, they had to get permission from Buckingham Palace. So they kind of submitted their request, and then the next day they got a word back from the Queen about whether they could use this plane for her body should she die like this. You know what she said? If it's good enough for my boys, it's good enough for me. What a woman. 
And why am I telling you this? Well, Peter calls these Christians to arm themselves with the attitude of Jesus, who suffered to carry out God's will, so they might too carry out his will, whatever they were going through. In other words, Peter says to them, Jesus suffered, and if it's good enough for him, it's good enough for you. We can learn from Jesus in this question. And finally, we're going to look at how we can listen to Peter's words in the second part of the reading, uh, in chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. And in this passage, Peter speaks with the bluntness of the Galilean fisherman that he was. He calls a spade a spade and doesn't sugarcoat this truth. But he's not a general barking orders. He speaks as a spiritual father who has suffered, who knows the suffering they're going through, and cares deeply about them. So why he addresses them as dear friends, or the translation Michael read from beloved. Such is his heart for these people. And that's why he wants to speak the truth to them and why we should all listen to these words of authority that come with care and truth. He tells them four things. The first is, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Peter says, I know your ordeal is painful, but don't be surprised by it. Don't think it's unusual. Whatever one of those providence you are in, if you're a Christian, you're going to suffer. Because Jesus said, if the world hates you, Keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember, this was written to Christians, not just in one church, but in multiple locations. And Peter says, wherever you are, you're going to suffer. But even the hatred of the world points to your identity as a child of God. For you belong to Jesus And in that commonality among other believers, it says something of the unity you have as you can love and support one another in your suffering. Because what Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, he could say here if he was writing, that they're the body of Christ and each one of you is part of it. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. And that's comforting when you're in the coalface to know that there are others going through that with you. It's also comforting for us that we have one another church We're not just here to receive teaching. We are a living community, united under our head, Jesus. And also, as we hear of Christians like the ones I read about at the start, they're connected to us spiritually as well because they belong to Jesus. And they need us to help them as well through praying for them, maybe giving financially, talking to Louis and Maribel or some of our friends at Commission, looking on websites like Open Doors, Operation World, Christian Solidarity Worldwide, International Justice Mission. There are plenty of them so that we can find out what's going on and pray for them, that our God will sustain them, be with them, and ultimately bring an end to this suffering. But there's a more immediate comfort as well that even in the midst of that ordeal, Jesus is at work. Now this language of the fiery ordeal, it it calls back chapter one, where Peter said that your faith, trials happen so that your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes, though refined by fire, may be proved genuine to result in praise, glory, and honor when Christ is revealed. In other words, he says, none of your suffering for Jesus is meaningless. God is using it to refine your faith like a a hot vat of liquid gold as the impurities are burned up so that that kind of messy liquid becomes more beautiful and shiny and precious as Jesus burns up the impurities of our faith to strengthen it so that we might be in no doubt our faith is more precious than the riches of the world. And that's a great comfort if you're in that situation. 
but it's also a challenge to us, isn't it? Because according to this passage, if we don't suffer any repercussions, any awkwardness or challenge for following Jesus, then our experience is abnormal. Peter's very clear, it's strange if you don't suffer. And if that's you, I would just sort of encourage you to ask why. It might be that it's because you're not following Jesus with the commitment that he calls you to. And if that is you, then I urge you to come to him. Ask him for his forgiveness. Ask him for more of the Holy Spirit to help you live for him and be empowered to serve him in the place that you are and help him to live, you to live for him no matter what. Next, Peter says, don't be sad, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the suffering of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of his name, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and God rests on you. Peter says here that when you suffer for following Jesus, you share something of his sufferings. Now, of course, what Christ suffered on the cross was unique in terms of what it achieved and the depth of it. But there's a principle here. Jesus suffered for doing the will of God. And as we suffer for doing the will of God, we share in his sufferings as we shall one day share in his glory. And that is why we're truly blessed if we're insulted for the name of Jesus. In 1964, the lady behind me, she's called Helen Roosevelt, she was a Christian missionary doctor in the Congo. Civil unrest broke out, and she and others were kidnapped and uh, imprisoned for a five-month period. And during that time, she was beaten and raped many times. And in her darkest hours, she questioned whether God loved her or whether he had forsaken her when she needed him most. And in that place, she experienced a powerful sense of God's presence assuring her of his love, and she articulated it this way in her book, He Gave Us a Valley. She felt God saying in all this, 20 years ago, you asked me for the privilege of being a missionary and identifying with me. This is it. Don't you want it? This is what it means. These are not your sufferings. They are mine. All I ask of you is the loan of your body. Now, only someone who's gone through the ordeal like she went through has the right to comment on it and as to what the spiritual lessons might be. And we should never seek to impose spiritual truths or platitudes when we're helping our friends mourn and grieve and go through suffering. But on the other hand, only someone who has suffered so much for and with Jesus is able to speak with authority on this topic and say, as she does, that she could rejoice as she participated in Christ's sufferings. Peter says, don't remain sad in your persecution, but rejoice as you participate in Christ's suffering, for you will one day participate and share in his glory. Next, Peter says, don't stumble. If you suffer, it shouldn't be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal, even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Peter says here, that not all suffering you go through means that you're being persecuted for being a Christian. If you're committing crimes or acting as an interfering busybody meddling in other people's affairs, the reason why they're angry with you isn't because you're following Jesus. And he goes on to call out murder and stealing because, of course, while the really hardcore Roman persecution wasn't until like 50 years after this, there would come a day when the states would pass laws where Christians would be persecuted and tortured and killed, and they'd have their property seized from them and taken by the state. 
And if you face something like that, when your life and those of your loved ones is in danger, the human reaction is to fight back, kill them before they kill you, and take back from yours what you believe they've stolen from you. Well, Peter says, don't fight them, forgive them. Earlier in his letter in chapter 3, verse 9, he says, do not, pay, don't, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called. Choosing not to retaliate in order to suffer as a Christian, to use Peter's words, can leave you feeling humiliated because we want to lash out. We want vindication when we've been treated badly. But Peter says, do not feel ashamed when you suffer for Jesus because you are following in his footsteps and he is the most courageous person that ever, ever lived. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate, said Peter in chapter two. When Jesus suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the God who judges justly. God says through Peter, don't stumble when you suffer. And you mustn't misinterpret this and think that uh, what's being said here is if you stumble and you make mistakes, God is gonna stop loving you. We kind of spoke of the gospel earlier, and that is the Christian's treasure, that our security isn't based in our works, but it's solely on Christ's death, his life, death, and resurrection for us. We need the gospel because we make mistakes and stumble every day. What this passage is about is that God wants to use our suffering for his glory, but if we're suffering for other purposes, it's harder for that to happen. So again, if that's something that happens to you, as it will happen to all of us at some point, when you stumble, say sorry to Jesus and ask him to help you as you follow him, that he might use you in your weakness for his glory. Don't stumble when you suffer. And the final point I've called, don't be self-absorbed. It is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If it is hard for the righteous to be saved, he's talking about Christians, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Talking about those who aren't. So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Peter understands that his dear friends are suffering and that it is tough. But he says, even in that dark, dark place, you must not allow your suffering to distract you from God's bigger picture and what he wants to do in and through you. And Peter says, if God allows even you, his dearly loved children, to suffer, what on earth awaits those who've rejected his offer of friendship in Christ? Well, the answer to that is that anyone who doesn't come to Jesus and take him up on his offer of forgiveness and acceptance in God is that they will face a persecution far worse than anything the early church has gone through after they die, as our righteous God treats them as their sins deserve. Yet Jesus died on the cross so that that needn't be the case for anyone, so that all might come to him, put their faith in him, and ask them with his help to live for him in all their weakness. So I urge you, if you do not follow Jesus, please make today the day that you do put your faith in him. Through his cross, he's done all that is necessary. All that he asks of you is to trust in him and follow him. And as we've heard, it does involve suffering, but you have no greater king leading the way and at your side and the family of God alongside you as well. And maybe you're not in that place yet. Well, I want to encourage you to keep seeking. We're so glad that you're here. Please ask more questions of your Christian friends who brought you here or leaders in the church. We can recommend books if you'd like to read more about it or talk during ministry later on. The stakes here are very, very high. 
So I urge you, put your faith in Jesus because he died for you so that you might have everlasting life in relationship with God. And with that in mind, Peter's message is don't take your eye off the ball, Christians. These stakes are high because your suffering, as terrible as though it is, and I know it's terrible, isn't about you ultimately. It's about me. It's about my will so that I might reveal the suffering Savior in your suffering, says God, so that many people might come to know him for themselves. God's care for the persecuted church is evident throughout this letter. And he encourages them to persevere in their suffering, not because he's a sectarian bigot who only cares about his own people, but because he wants to use them to share his message all across the world with people who hate him so that they might come to have faith in him. And it's a wonderful truth that our God loves the persecuted and he loves the persecutor as well, which is why he sends out the gospel message because it's this gospel message that is our way in. But that's an unpopular message, isn't it? Because it's saying that you are a sinner. You cannot save yourselves. You need someone to die for you in the person of Christ. And that's why throughout, you can put the the last slide back on. It's just changed, but put put the last one back on, please. Um, You can still go on following God in, in this situation. And it's unpopular, but God wants to use that situation for his glory so that all who might hear it might come to know him. And that's why Peter ends this section by saying, anyone who suffers according to God's will should commit themselves to a faithful creator. Because in that suffering, you've got to commit it to God. You can't do it in your own strength. But that's all he asks you to do. Trust in him so that persecutor and persecuted alike can come to know him. And you know, the reason why Jesus hasn't returned to establish that kingdom isn't because of the persecuted church. It's because of those who are doing the persecuting. In his second letter, Peter commenting on why the second coming of Christ takes so long, he says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Jesus hasn't come back yet because he wants the persecutors to be saved as long as the persecuted such is our God. And one example of someone who embodied that final verse of committing themselves to God and continuing to do good was Stephen. He was the first Christian martyr. He preached a very direct sermon as he confronted people with sin and they took him out of the city walls and they stoned him to death. And as he died, he committed his spirit into God's hand and he offered this prayer, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. But you know, God answered that prayer because there's a man, sorry, put the slide back again. Um, There's a man in the background, it wouldn't have looked like this, it's a bit medieval, this is kind of obviously a lot earlier in history. The guy at the back with the coats, that was a guy called Saul of Tarsus, he held the coats of the people doing the stoning as he cheered them on, as he was delighted this man was being persecuted, and he persecuted Christians himself. But one day he was on his way to persecute Christians, and the resurrected Christ appeared to him and said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus never met Saul during his earthly ministry, but what he's saying to him is that as you persecute Stephen, or someone persecutes a brother or sister in North Korea, they're persecuting me, because they belong to me, and I'm with them, and I'm at work in the midst of their suffering. And Jesus wanted Saul to know that, and Saul eventually became a Christian, and under his Roman name of Paul, he wrote many books of the New Testament, preached this gospel of grace and forgiveness all around the world, and was one day martyred himself as Stephen's prayer was answered. And this sin wasn't held against him, but it was forgiven. And God turned this angry heart into one of the most loving hearts ever to be used for his glory. 
So as I close, God cares passionately about the persecuted church and the persecutors of the church. That is why Jesus came into our world. It's why he lived the life we could never live. It's why he died the death that we all deserve. And he rose in glory so that every and any one of us can put our faith in him and know the forgiveness that God offers. And he calls you Christians to keep going and serving him because he wants to use you in your suffering, hard as it might be. And he calls those who don't know him to come to him because he will not turn you away if you come to him in faith. God cares. Amen. I'm going to pray and then I think we're going to have a time of communion and uh, the band will play. Our Father God, we thank you for your heart for the nations. We thank you for your heart for our fallen and sinful world that you gave your one and only son in Jesus so that we might know forgiveness, we might know reconciliation to our Father and we might know the love that only your love offers. And I ask Lord that as we go into this time of response now, your Holy Spirit will be applying truths we've heard today so that we might see you better, love you more, serve you more faithfully, Lord. Thank you for your great, great care for us. Amen. Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.